The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. So the ghosts out in the hall, the paint peeling off the walls, good night. Sometimes I stand between the sidewalk and the sky. And just staring through the clouds as they pass by You have to leave the ground to learn to fly Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You are listening to me on VoiceAmericaVariety.com, World Talk Radio, with my co-host and expert, Lauren Beller-Blake. how are you this morning, Lauren? Good morning, Catherine. I'm doing well. Great to have you. The Catherine Zox Show. We've talked to thousands of guests with a focus on women's issues. That's what you're going to hear today. Uh, we're going to hear specifically, um, in coming up in the next half hour, uh, an author who has written a book called Denial, a memoir of terror, Jessica Stern. Um, but before we do that, we're going to talk to Lauren, who is our expert entrepreneur, works with women, business coach, etc. Um, and Lauren, you have a guest blogger on your site. And people ask me more about like what does Lauren do? What's her area of expertise? So I want to talk I want to get real specific this morning because I think listeners really want to hear from you specifically um, you know, what Big Fish Nation does and some of the new programs, but besides that, you have this whole blogging thing going on on your website, which I love. Um, and one of the topics was solopreneurs, solopreneurs, which a lot of women today uh, are doing. They're home, they're working, they're doing it alone. There's good stuff related to that, but there's also some things that happen that really um, isolate us when we're doing our business at home. So I think that's what will this blog on the um, Big Fish Nation website address. So, so talk to us about that. Well, first of all, you're right. We do have a lot going on. <laughs> you <laughs> have we so start? much going on. Um, and second, I think that the numbers of solopreneurs in this country is growing every single day, specifically women, because... They're leaving work. They're being laid off. Matter of fact, my neighbor, great example, you know, was working for a company, got laid off. What's she doing? She's not looking for another job. She's looking for projects to do so that she can start her own business. So it's happening every single day. But I do think that there's a, and I speak to women all the time that are solopreneurs or, you know, wanting to grow from solopreneur to small business, and there's challenges. You know, there's great freedom and flexibility in it, but there's also challenges and um Starla, who's our guest blogger, she's a solopreneur. She's specifically a writer. And she was speaking a couple weeks ago about the challenges of what happens when the solo feels more like being alone. And I think that's so true. I think so many women work alone and um, feel alone. And therefore, 
the creativity starts to dwindle, the excitement starts to dwindle, they lose their vision. Um, I don't mean vision like their sight, but, you know, the reason why they started the business in the first place. So I think it's a big deal. Yeah, I do too. And I think that, you know, at first probably, um, you know, you feel like, wow, I have all the flexibility because I'm working alone. I don't have to answer to anybody. It's my own business. I'm not, I don't even have to answer to employees because I'm in my own house. But as you describe it, and I, and, and we don't, I don't know are there numbers in terms of how many maybe that doesn't even make any difference in terms of how many men women are working at home, but um, as you say, at some point the solitude becomes a there's a risk of diminishing returns. You're, well, all the pluses start dwindling and you get into the minus situation. So uh, there are a number of reasons. Though, yeah, let's because... address some of those issues. Uh, there's a reason. There's a couple of reasons that happens. I think one is a lot of people are stimulated and excited by other people, um, so they therefore they don't have that. And then how do they maintain it? Because I don't think it has to be like that. I do think that if you're going into business and you're going to be spending more time alone, how do you manage that so that it's not so um, it's not so alone and it's not so um, isolating? I work alone all the time, but I never feel alone. You know, I'm in my office alone for six hours a day. Never do I feel alone. I feel, I almost feel like too much. You know, I'm on the phone all the time. For me, that doesn't feel alone. For other people, they might feel really alone. So you have to manage it. You have to really get to know yourself. That's why I think that entrepreneurship is all about personal growth. Yeah. I you, think on, and on this, this, this blogger that was, that's on your website, bigfishnation.com, she talks about one way of overcoming this feeling of loneliness rather than just, you know, it's not simply feeling like a solopreneur, but you're feeling actually lonely Alone, and not yeah. being able to get your work done. Not true in your case, you're saying. But she says one of the things that you can do, and I think this is really helpful, um, she says instead of having my second cup of coffee at home each day. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Uh, Why preparing mentally or emotionally for her day, she actually gets her body out there gets out of the house, gets out of the apartment, and goes to a Starbucks, a Panera, or whatever the coffee place is in your area, and sits and has coffee with real people. And I think that's really important, whether you're actually sitting with real people, meeting with them, or you're out and about in the hustle and bustle of the world. Either one works. I, I think that's really important. I also think it's really helpful for um, any time you're working on a creative project as a solopreneur, do it in a different spot than your office. Like, get out of the house and do it in a more inspiring place where there's upbeat energy. I think that's so important. So what do you mean by that? Let's say you, have, you are in your apartment and you have your desk there and you have your computer and you have all your stuff and you're saying, well, you're starting a new project. Don't sit there and do the, a new project in the same spot. So where do you do, do you bring? Uh, let's talk about it from a practical perspective. What do you do? Bring the stuff with you to another room or another venue well, or some, what? I've spoken to people that have taken their, you know, laptops and their paperwork, whatever they're doing, whatever project it is they're working on, and they go to Starbucks or they go to a, you know, a park where there's picnic tables where they can work, and it totally changes the energy about the project and your work. So I do think that you can just get yourself out of the house, get yourself out of the normal um, doldrums place, whatever that place is. Good advice. Okay, there's also some more stuff that's on the blog, which I think I, I, I want to mention. Um, it's one of the things she suggests, the blogger, is that you need to recommit to monthly face-to-face and weekly phone meetings with a colleague, a friend, a co. She calls it a co-conspirator. Um, 
what does she mean by that? What do you do? Well, she, um, and she's very good at this. She, I think she's been in and out of experiences where she had committed times where she met with somebody on a regular basis. And I think that's so valuable. So choose another solopreneur that would be helpful to meet with just on a regular basis to brainstorm. It could be someone in the same industry. It could be someone in a, I actually prefer it to be someone in a partnering industry. You know, someone that um, is also maybe could be the recipient of your writing or maybe that you both, one's an editor, one's a writer. You know, you can refer back and forth to one another. But someone, an ally, I like to call that a business ally. And meet with that person on a regular basis. Pick up the phone, meet for face-to-face if you are in the same community. If you're not, phone is great. But have this conversation that is more supportive than anything. In other words, it's not like a potential client. It's not sales. It's not marketing. It's supporting one another so that you can hear what's going on. You can hear the stresses. You can hear the struggle and support each other in that process. And, Lauren, isn't that a group that's similar to a support group for mommies, mommies who aren't even Absolutely. working in business to make money, but they're sitting there with two or three kids. They are maybe taking time off from their businesses, but they need to connect as well, so they'll go out and have mommy groups, whatever they are, whatever interests them or their children. So you're doing the same thing, except you're doing it, it's related more to your business. That you yeah, you're doing connect. it in the context of business and solopreneurship, and women in particular. I think that it's different to do it with a woman than it is a man. A man is going to have different ways of supporting himself. A woman is going to, they're going to need similar support networks just because of who we are. It's our chemistry. It's our makeup. So, yeah, men do it very differently. And, they I, and do, they yeah. may not, what do you think? I don't think, I mean, you as the expert, and I know now you're just focusing on women, obviously, women entrepreneurs, uh, but men do have different ways of needs, I think, in business to connect. And it's Definitely. not the same as women. So I think it's really important for like someone like you to define like what is what works for women and what works for women who are working at home alone, in this case the solopreneurs. Is this a new concept? Cause, or I just saw it on your website, but on the Big Fish Nation website, solopreneurs? solopreneurs? Or is no, this it's a- been around forever. Matter of fact, there's associations now that solopreneurs can join just for this purpose. But um, no, Big Fish is not focused on just solopreneurs, but I would say 50% of the people that join Big Fish are solopreneurs. It's not a new concept. It's booming. You know, it's booming from coast to coast and around the world. Yeah. What about connecting with other women around the world? Now, there you can't do fake, you know, connecting. I, um... But what about Skype? There's Skype is such a great service. You could use Skype for that. And we did, we... Um, there's solopreneurs all around the world, literally. So you just don't limit yourself just to this country. There's a lot going on globally. This is not a national market anymore. This is a international global market for even the solopreneur. I spoke to a solopreneur the other day. She's doing business literally globally. She travels all over the world internationally for her business. And it's a small business. What is the business? I mean, what kind she of is in communication. She helps businesses mark, um, create marketing and communications plans. And she, her clients are mostly international. Cool. What happens if you don't connect around the world? Do you think you're at a disadvantage? Can you anymore just say, well, I just work within this small area. I'm from Montana. I'm from Chicago. I think you can. I think you absolutely can. I think you get to choose, and that's part of the flexibility and the nimbleness of being a solopreneur. You get to do it any way you want. I mean, that's the power and the freedom and flexibility piece that's really, that makes it great, you know? So in the blog, she says, and of course she has, one of your tenets, which I aspire to, give energy to that which we want to grow. Remember that. Give energy uh-huh. to that which we want to grow. Um, and she says in the blog, 
which is what you're talking about, Lauren. I shift my attention away from alone and toward connection. It's all about connection. Mm-hmm. Women really want to connect. Um, I find that that tends to be my intention for myself on Monday morning. After uh, you know a weekend of family and focus on family, that's usually my Monday morning intention for myself. <laughs> and I think that in order to be intentional about connecting, we have to be thoughtful about it, or else we tend to be walking through the world very alone. And but you could be surrounded by people, but feel very alone because we haven't taken the, we haven't been conscious about trying to connect with people. So I love how she's written that. Um, that her intention for the entire week was to connect, to surround herself. She said with the expectation of being connected in everything I do. And can you actually, once you're able to do this, do you think there's a way in which you can? monitor this in terms of how much business you do or how much better your business gets or if you Definitely. found that with the women entrepreneurs that you're dealing with when they when they when they're able you know when they don't become isolated when they're able to do this this to to connect get out there do these healthy kinds of things um, do you think that they're besides I don't even say business opportunities do you think they end up making more money when they do I this I totally do and I don't think that you should go about you know, she started speaking about five specific points in her blog, and I would add a sixth. And the sixth one would be, as you're doing these five things, pay attention to your bottom line more so than ever. In other words, get very intentional about which part of your business you're going to grow. In other words, choose a line item of an area that you want to grow your business in. Get conscious about increasing funds in that area or decreasing expenses in a certain area. Do it in conjunction. I'm always about taking hardcore business skills, financial management, and it, or for example, and integrating it with a spiritual approach to success, which may be, um, you know, connecting, connecting more spiritually or connecting more personally. Um, so critical, the two go together, and you're going to find that when you con- concentrate and focus on both of those aspects of business, they will grow. Lauren Deller-Blake, expert, business entrepreneur, CEO of Big Fish Nation, and you can go to that website, bigfishnation.com. Laura and I are going to take a short break, and when we come back, our guest is Jessica Stern, author of Denial, a Memoir of Terror. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com, World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. 
Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnist. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time, the number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox and Lauren Deller-Blake, uh, my business expert and entrepreneur. And you can go to BigFishNation.com if you want to learn more about Lauren. Uh, you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com World Talk Radio. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and this morning we are talking to Jessica Stern. She's author of Denial, a Memoir of Terror. Uh, she's one of the foremost experts on terrorism and PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, she has recently turned her sights to her own experience of terror, her rape at gunpoint at the age of 15 in the suburban town of Concord, Massachusetts. And this happened many, many years ago, and she's decided to, I guess, now um, write a book about it. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you are, Jessica, uh, a terror expert. Um, and this, I guess, is the result of your own personal story, how you were terrorized in, what, in the 1970, 1973, at the age of 15, you and your little sister who was 14 at the time? Yes, I, I never really thought about why I do what I do, which is not only study terrorism, but I've talked to a lot of terrorists and um I my editor talked me into expanding a little piece I had on what it feels like to be terrorized in into a book and um when I asked for the file from my 1973 rape, rape the police officer who had to redact it realized that it was a serial rapist of children and he reopened the case and the book on one level is a, a kind of mystery what happens when that case gets reopened. What do we discover about where he was active, whom he raped, um, and, and about him, because I investigated him. But on another level, all that investigating brought on symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, which I thought would be useful to describe. Why do you think, Jessica, and I want to give maybe some more background on you because you are a member of the Hoover Institution Task Force on National Security and Law, just a little bit more so that listeners can know who you are. Um, and you teach about terrorism at Harvard University. Uh, you have a doctorate in public policy from Harvard and author of a New York Times book, Terror in the Name of God, It's all and, and The Ultimate Terrorist. So the word terror is always in there. <laughs> so, so, Jessica, why did it take, you're the expert on terror, why do you think it took 30 years um, 
to reopen your to your rape case. You know, thirty years is a is a lifetime. <laughs> I I didn't think that it was affecting me. I I thought I'd put it behind me. I it it didn't. I didn't want to be sitting in a cave feeling sorry for myself and afraid. Um, I didn't realize. I mean, I wasn't. You know, I was obviously very active in the world, but nonetheless, it, it's pretty obvious now that, in retrospect, how much the rape affected me, how much it changed my life. And, and I think anyone it, listening to say, how could it not? Fifteen years old, you and your sister were at home alone in your house in Concord, Massachusetts, and a strange man comes in with a gun and rapes you and your sister? Yep, 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 yep. I, another thing I'm, I'm trying to highlight, although I, I definitely go into the terror of the rape, I'm also trying to highlight post-traumatic growth, the possibility of how sometimes victims of post-traumatic stress disorder are able, even before getting treated, to use their symptoms in productive ways. And I'm getting so many letters from both men and women who read my book and realized that they had post-traumatic stress disorder and now are see that maybe some of the work that they do could be related to that. One psychologist wrote me and said she never really thought about why it was that she worked on such high-risk cases with the police, and she thinks now that it was because of a similar incident that happened to her when she was a teenager. Um, So what can you do, Jessica, to make it work for you rather than work against you? I mean, you're raped 30 years ago. Your sister's raped. It sounds horrific. I mean, it's the most horrific situation. Um, And then you go to the police. Um, The police don't believe you, that the rapist was a stranger, um, and he was never caught. So how do you go on from there and make it as you did? Obviously, maybe if it was unconscious, you put it... You took all that, we'll call it PSTD, and, you know, became an expert on terrorism. I, you know, I don't know exactly why why it worked out that way for me, but I do know that um, it is possible with help and, and treatment to definitely find a way to, to um, use symptoms to one's advantage um, that you can't really be cured of PTSD but it is possible to recognize that one goes into a state of hyper vigilance which is you're aware of absolutely everything around you and that that in certain kinds of work that can be useful uh, for example, an example it's very useful How is that if you useful? want to interview terrorists Jessica Yes. Yeah. How do, how is that useful in your in your business and what you do? Because that hypervigilance um, could be really scary if you don't know what it is or where it's coming from. And how do you use it in a positive way in your work with terrorism, terrorist terrorism? I 
have found that I can, when I'm in a dangerous situation, truly dangerous, I can go into a state of extreme calm. And I'm both hyper-aware of what's going on, but I'm also in a state of calm and able to act. And that's a real, that's very useful. I mean, what I see, I see physicians working in extremely risky parts of the world. I think this is what they're doing. Um, reporters, war correspondents, I think that's what they're doing. I think that there, there are careers that make use of what the medical profession calls a symptom. You, know, you said that you can never, ever get cured. You used the, I think you used the word cured, um, that the effects of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder on one's life, are con- are, will always be with you. I mean, it's something that even in a therapeutic situation you can't get rid of, I mean, that you can't be cured of. I, is that the case? Well, it, in cases where there is a long-term um, tr- triggering, it, it's much harder to get rid of PTSD. And, you know, I, there's some people, it, it lasts longer than, than you might think. And um, in some cases, it doesn't go away. I, I doubt that mine will go away. But you've taken it and you've put it in, as you say, in a positive context. You use it, you know, in, in extremely um, scary situations. Also, use the word scary. You say that you can get really calm and you handle the situation in a positive way, whatever that happens to be. Um, yes, yes. I, I, I can't. I mean, I've, I've definitely changed over time with treatment, and I can't go to Pakistan anymore and go to terrorist training camps. That's not something I would do. I know know enough about myself that I realize that that's, that's just kind of foolish, actually. But I was able to, to, to do that, and I think it was actually useful for my work when I was able to do it. And when you did it, talk to us about your work and how it was useful. Like, can you, are you able to talk about that? Like, specifically, did you did go to Pakistan or you did go to some of those highly, very dangerous, toxic countries, um, and you were at one time able to do that and apply, I guess, use your emotional state to uh, accomplish what you need to accomplish. Yes, I, I traveled all over the world, mostly before 9-11, um, talking to terrorists who were members of bin Laden's International Islamic Front. And I, I did exactly what Daniel Pearl did, and I was very fortunate. Um, it was it, it was pretty foolish what I did, but I learned a lot about why terrorists do what they do, because I just asked them why they do what they do, and I'll summarize uh, for you what I think I learned. I think humiliation when it comes to jihadi terrorism is a very important concept. They talk about it as civilizational humiliation, that Islamic civilization has fallen behind and that that's a humiliating situation for them, and the way to recover dignity is by getting involved in a violent jihad. Unfortunately, that's the solution that the jihadi leaders are prescribing. So is there a response to that that we can, I mean, how do we respond to that? That's, that's a, a, I guess, 
an in- interesting concept. I mean, because a what did you you, you said it's a, a kind of a, a social humiliation, a cultural humiliation. Well, that's how they describe it. But frankly, I I wonder whether personal humiliation may play a role. One of the issues I discuss in in denial that my latest book is something I've known about for many years, but never really thought about the import of it. When you're in Pakistan, you hear all about sexual abuse of of boys at madrasas. In fact, you're more likely to hear about madrasas as a source of abuse than as factories for jihad, which is how we think of them in the West. And I, I do wonder whether that kind of abuse makes these kids more vulnerable to recruitment. And it doesn't mean how that could, there's... My, well, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, how could it not? If you are right. abusing and humiliating a young boy, I mean, what is going to be the impact on, on, on that psyche? I mean, it, it makes sense that um, the anger, the frustration, I mean, the, to the anger, I guess, is what I, it would seem to me would, would be just um, something that would be so out there and that, uh, is that... Am I on the right track? Yes. I mean, I, I, I don't really know. I'm hoping that this will inspire do- some doctoral students to take on, you know, to test this hypothesis. But jihadis do talk about humiliation. They don't talk about personal humiliation. I never ask them about it. But they do talk about cultural humiliation. And I, 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 I just can't help but wonder now... Um, whether they focus on the idea of humiliation because they actually feel personally humiliated, that that impacts their political understanding. It impacts the way they look at the world, and it impacts the way they hear Zawahri's message that globalization is humiliating uh, to Muslims, and the way to overcome that humiliation is by picking up a gun. We are going to take a break, <laughs> and you're, we are talking to Jessica uh, Stern, who is author of Denial, a memoir of terror. Don't go away, because Jessica's coming back um, to talk more about her book. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, with my co-host and business expert, Lauren Deller-Blake. You're listening to World Talk Radio, The Catherine Zox Show. We'll be back in a minute. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. If you want to get ahead, you have to stand out from the crowd, the clutter, and the competition. Are you? Tune in each week for Standing Out with Lauren Sonnier. Lauren and her guests have the secrets that can help you and your business get noticed, get attention, and achieve your desired results no matter where you're starting from. Standing Out with Lauren Sonnier, live every Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Get ready to be a marketing machine. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. 
Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations, who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone with my co-host and business expert, Lauren Beller-Blake. It's Voice America, Variety.com, World Talk Radio. And we are talking to Jessica Stern. Her, her new book is Denial, a Memoir of Terror, and uh, Jessica is one of the world's foremost experts on terror- terrorism. Uh, she teaches at Harvard University. Um, she herself experienced, and this is what her book is about, uh, a personal terror when she was 15 years old and her daughter, was, uh, her sister was four. They were both raped in their own home in their own neighborhood. And uh, I guess, Jessica, we're kind of relating this to your, your own personal experience of being terrorized uh, affected the kind of work that you did or do with terrorists. I mean, and you actually have been to Pakistan talking to the jihadists, and we were, you were saying that they're one of the reasons that they give, or is this your assessment, that they are, you know, why they do what they do in terms of being terrorists is because of their own cultural humiliation, because they've been humiliated, because they feel that they are, what, less than, and that we are doing that to them, or the Western world is doing that to them. How does that play out? Well, um, yes, I ask them uh, why they do what they do, and they, that's what they say. But Zawahi, who's bin Laden's number two, he also talks about humiliation. Um, it, Humiliation is a feeling. You can try to inculcate that feeling deliberately in people. You can tell them that they're humiliated. You can tell young people they're humiliated, that somebody's humiliated them, somebody's to blame, um, and that's what I see happening. Um, it's not, you know, it can be quite manipulative. Um, it, it's possible to try to use that to create a kind of army to say that somebody has hurt you, somebody has humiliated you, somebody has made you less than than you can be in the way you need to take back that dignity. Um, and, and that's what, what I think happens. It's incredibly cynical. How would you compare that, and I know it's a different set of circumstances. I just got back from Poland a couple months ago and you know, went to Auschwitz and Treblinka and the, the death camps and the extermination camps of the Jews in Poland during World War II. Um, and talk, I mean, to, that was an ultimate humiliation. And of those who survived, I mean, how does that kind of reconcile with what you're saying, that those people um, didn't respond in the same way? Or is there, can you make that comparison? Well, it's a really good question. We don't know exactly why um, sometimes people are humiliated and they react 
violently. That one hypothesis is that it has to do with honor cultures. Um, there's a, a sociologist who's done experiments looking at how people react in the Northeast versus the South, even in the United States, if they're dissed, if you push them. Um, and it, his hypothesis is that in honor cultures, people are much more likely to react in a, in a violent way. And um, it, James Gilligan has done studies of violent criminals in the inner city. And, and the, in honor cultures, um, you do see uh, a reaction to being dissed, uh, people becoming violent in reaction to that perception. So, for instance, in a, in a city, that's a good example. Like if you have a motorcycle gangs, there's an honor code for these gangs. Someone does something bad to you or the gang, you you go after them. I don't know very much about motorcycle gangs, but there are similarities between violent gangs and terrorist groups. I think that in some parts of Europe, in Muslim immigrant communities, that the reason people get involved in jihadi culture um, is not that different from the reasons that they might get involved in a gang. We don't know why in some places gangs take hold and in others you see jihad, uh, jihad recruiting for jihad. But there are efforts, for example, in London to try to use former gang members and people who have been recruited by jihadi organizations to turn these kids around. So uh, uh, kind of co-opting them, I guess, is what you would yes. say. <laughs> co-opting them to make them feel part of the broader society rather than a subculture. So it, does it have anything to do with socioeconomic status? It doesn't seem to. You know, uh, you'll hear uh, people saying, well, you know, the, the jihadists are people who are uh, humiliated and they come from a lower economic status and they don't have, you know, they don't live well, they don't have good living conditions, on and on. But that's not necessarily true because a lot of the jihadists, or many, are the ones that you read about are engineers or college educated, so there's another piece to this. Yes. Um, I mean, first of all, there's a difference between leaders and, and followers, but second, there's no correlation between low GDP and terrorism. Um, there have been big studies by econometricians that demonstrate that. That doesn't mean that within a poor country that you wouldn't see poor people being recruited to be cannon fodder in a jihadi organization. But looking globally, there, poverty is not a cause of terrorism. So, now that's kind of stepping back a little because you're talking about in the honor code has something to do with how one reacts to being pushed or humiliated. Uh, what's the opposite of that? Or like in, in cultures or in countries where they're, you know, they don't adhere to this, uh, maybe this honor code, uh, there's a different reaction to when somebody comes after you or you feel threatened. And what's that reaction? <laughs> well, I can tell you that 
I I think of Harvard University as a kind of humiliation factory. And, <laughs> and you probably there are a lot of people who would agree with you. <laughs> yes. I have a whole family who graduated from Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So um and yet um with the exception of the Unabomber, there aren't a lot of famous terrorists coming out of Harvard. Um and how do people react now? I'm not really so much talking about students, but faculty. When somebody disses your article, um, there are ways that people get back. <laughs> it's not usually violent. Um, so, I, you know, we we don't. This is something that is is not yet understood. Um, we do see, however, that when there are more checkpoints in Palestine, from going from Israel to Palestinian territory, and people feel more humiliated, according to polling, you do see more attacks. So this isn't just a um, pure case study phenomenon, we also do see, if you look at broader populations, that in certain cultures, a, a feeling of humiliation does seem to have a, an adverse effect in terms of so greater what, violence. You, uh, that, you know, given that, or that's uh, an interesting point, um, Jessica, let's relate that to the building of the cultural center, or not, in, uh, you know, two blocks away from ground zero. How does that fit into all of this? whether to build it or not to build it, or, you know, you're talking about when you actually in reality, if you don't put sanctions on people, then there's, there's less violence. And I don't want to answer the question, but I just, I'd like your read on it. What do you, how do you feel about that? What do you think? How does it relate to what you're talking about? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I never really thought about it, but I suppose it's a way of establishing dignity that that is not violent at all uh it's a way of recovering a, a feeling i mean i th- i think 911 and the jihadi movement that has been inspired by bin laden has not only killed more muslims uh globally the the jihadi movement um than others but it's also been particularly bad for for Muslims and really not just in Iraq but around the globe it's Muslims who have suffered the most um, and I, I think this is a, a way of of making clear that Islam and bin Laden and the jihadi culture that he has inspired are are not the same thing just as the the people who go and kill abortion providers are not recognized as as Christians by most Christians, even though they claim to be doing this because they're motivated by their Christianity. Yeah, I, I think the point you bring up is is important to kind of reiterate that you know it has this the jihadi movement has <clears throat> hurt more Muslims than it has <clears throat> other groups, um, and I think sometimes we or. As, as Americans, or <clears throat> even in the press, we seem to forget that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and and, and we don't talk that's about that. exactly what 
the jihadi groups would like. They don't, jihadi groups, it's not good for their image that they're killing so many Muslims. And this caused a, a big problem for Zarqawi um, in Iraq, that he was killing so many Muslims. Um, but it, it's a kind of, we're, we're, we're kind of helping them along by, by not, by allowing them to get away with this and not publicizing how many Muslims they kill. Well, you're not letting them get away with it, <laughs> and we're not letting them get away with it on this show. Uh, it's been really a, a fascinating talk with you. I just want to, because um, we are going to have to say goodbye, but your book, which is uh, just out, Jessica Stern, Denial, a Memoir of Terror, uh, you can read more about your personal story and um, the uh, what's described as an intimate and astonishingly frank examination of a brutal rape and its aftermath on on you, on your profession, and on your personal life um, can be bought uh, online, bookstores everywhere. And do you have a website that we can go to? Yes, I do. It's jessicasternbooks.com. That's easy. jessicasternbooks.com. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Have a great day. Lauren and I will be back in a minute. You're listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com, World Talk Radio. Don't go away. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Emotional intelligence has been documented to be the most important skill for a leader to move up in an organization. Leaders Playbook will unpack what emotional intelligence is, why it is important, and how you can raise your emotional intelligence for yourself, your direct reports, and your team. Join Dr. Relly Nadler every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern, to the Leaders Playbook on the Voice America Business Channel. Your success, your success could depend on it. Women in business today face many challenges in advancing their careers and reaching their goals. There are corporate executives, entrepreneurs, and business owners that have made their mark in business. Now you can learn their secrets and tips. Listen to Women Mean Business as your host, Bonnie Marcus, explores how to thrive in the business environment, navigate the workplace, and climb the corporate ladder. Listen live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and effectively promote yourself today. Interstate Sportsman Talk Radio Show brings two well-known outdoorsmen to the Voice America Network with hunting and fishing info news. Talking about everything from new sporting gear, places to hunt and fish, and getting more from your recreation time. Join host Brock Ray and Don Kirk Friday mornings at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 Eastern, for the Interstate Sportsman on the Voice America channel. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. 
VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. My host, co-host, Lauren Deller-Blake, expert and business coach. And you are listening to us on Voice America, worldtalkradio.com. Um Lauren, here's an article from Bicycling Magazine, which I thought listeners would be interested in because it's about bicycling and kids going back to school, and it's, oh, what is it, August 26th almost. Uh, my son's birthday, August 27th. I still haven't sent his card yet. But... Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> but going back to school, some kids are going back to school now, I guess, and bicycling is a big thing. I mean, I'm out here on Cape Cod, and everybody's bicycling, and I didn't have a bicycle, and one of my sons came, and he bought these secondhand bikes for us, and they're not working well, so I really should invest in a bicycle. But this isn't, you know, when, uh, in 1969, which is my era, almost half of all kids, half of all kids rode bikes or walked to school. Wow. Yeah. Today, only 13% of kids get to school by walking or riding a bike. Uh, and it's a shame. It's too bad. Why aren't they doing it? Uh, one of the reasons that uh, they give in Bicycling Magazine is, well, if they would ride their bikes to school, if they were able to ride their, not just 13%, but at least get back to 50%, um, there'd be some real benefits. You'd reduce traffic and accidents around school. That's one of the things that they talk about in this article. Introduce kids to a really fun form of daily exercise, and also the big one, help fight against overweight kids and childhood obesity. So, I mean, those are really good goals, and I think there's really good motivations for us to try and get our kids back on bicycles, back to school, instead of riding in cars, carpooling, traffic. Uh, you talk about mothers who are at home and not able to, to get out and get around. They wouldn't have to do that. The kid can ride their bike to school. Okay, so but you've got to do that. In order to do that, you have to make it safe. Because you'll hear parents today saying, well, it's not going to be safe for my kid to get on a bicycle and ride to school. That's what I would say. Yeah, wouldn't you, yeah you have a four-year-old, a five-year-old. Do you want her riding her bicycle to school? Well, you know what? There's one school that if we had chosen that school, she could have ridden her bike. But the school, other school is across the big highway. No, she's not riding her bike, you know. All right, so you just mentioned one of the reasons that parents give for not allowing their kids to ride their bikes to school. Uh, safety, safety on the road. Also, safety from predators. Parents think, you know, if the kid gets on his bicycle, he or she, they're going to get, well, they're going to get absconded with or they're going to be, you know, raped or something's going to happen, something bad. There are going to be predators out there who are going to do something to the kids. Kids live further away from school. That is true. So when they have to bicycle, um, it may be father proximity. Um, and two-income families, they give us a reason. When both parents work, they want to exercise more control over their kids' lives. They want to maybe be with them in the car. That's considered... I don't know what you would call it, uh, time with the kids. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I don't know if you count that, but working parents do count that because they are so busy. So, well, I have an opportunity to drive for 20 minutes, a half hour with my kid, and I get to be with them, so why would I want them to ride a bike? One of the answers to that was, though, then why doesn't one parent ride Ride the bike with them? Because they have to drop the kid off and then go to work. Well, they can ride with the kid. uh, You mean then they can ride back and then 
they've gotten their exercise in for the day so that they don't have to at noon or whenever they usually do their exercise. Uh, they don't have to do that anymore. They, the parent has already done their exercise. They can ride bikes with two or three kids in the neighborhood. So there is a parent there, but yet everybody's getting their exercise. And um, parent and child, both. But I think that's a, I, I really think it's a good idea. Well, I think it, I mean, I, it was funny. We were, Sierra and I were in the car together, went to swim class yesterday. We got home. She says, Mommy, I really want to ride my bike. But she doesn't want to ride her bike alone. She wants to ride together, which I love. You know, so we ride on our street or over and over and around and around. So you'd be the perfect parent to do just that. Yeah, ride through. Yeah, ride your bike with, to, to school with her. Um, I think, and so you'd also be a good person to organize group rides to and from school. You could get volunteer parents to be able to do that. Even mothers who are staying at home or fathers. Yeah. Who are working at home? How about the solo entrepreneur who is working at home and needs to kind of change her or his? Change, we'll talk about her exercise in before sitting at her desk all day. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a great idea. I do too. Um, another suggestion in Bicycle Magazine was, and you can read the whole article because um, it's at bookstores. It's a, you know it's in the grocery store or wherever you get your magazines. Um, that it's necessary to hold bicycle and pedestrian safety classes for kids. So you know you want to be you want to do that too as well so that they know what the rules and regulations are. And also you can get your kids interested in bicycling, and I think this is a great idea because um, bicycling or biking for charity, you know, you want to get your kids when they're younger to be uh, interested in helping other people and to take on causes, and this is one way of getting them into it. Like there was uh, a school in Utah that the kids that, uh, know they will donate 40 cents to an orphanage in Kenya for every 10 miles biked or walked Love it. during the 2009-2010 school year. Great idea. Great idea. And that's certainly easy to do. So you get the kids doing both. They're exercising. They may be spending time with the parent who is bicycling with them to and from school, and they will also be donating almost half of what, you know, 40 or 40 cents, whatever you decide. Um, in this case, it was 40 cents to an orphanage orphanages in Kenya. So it opens up a whole new world. Oh, I love that. That's fabulous. Yeah. And then also the second part for kids who don't want to give away their money, they can do it for a prize. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Which may have been my category. No. Uh, apparently, uh, this is a school in Boulder, Colorado. Kids walk or ride their bikes to school as a way to compete for prizes, really cool prizes like iPods. Cool. Yeah, I mean, iPods are practical as well. So if you bicycle to school, you get a prize or the most miles that you bicycle, and you get an iPod, or maybe you get an iPad like I just got. Um, apparently, there was a school in Ohio organized their bike to school challenge. In this was actually this was a couple years ago. Um, Three hundred and sixty-three kids signed up. And by the end of their three-week period, they had 550 students had participated in a program uh, to bike to school. This was middle school. Wow. Uh See, that's so so good to get them out and active again. I think it's great. Out and active with a purpose? Yeah, with a purpose. It's a great idea. You know, instead of just saying, take your bike and ride around the block, I mean, (laughs) you can be earning money, you can be, you can be, uh, Volunteering for volunteering, a good philanthropic, spending time. I mean, there's so many things. Connecting with your mother or or your father, or 
even connecting with other kids. You're not so isolated if you're riding your bike to school with them. Yeah, I love that. And also, another thing, and, you know, it's only, what, two weeks, September 1st, week and a half, actually. Um, If you do that, if you're riding your bicycle, you don't have to worry. You know, a lot of the schools are cutting down on gym classes and, and sports and things like that because there's not enough money, not enough funding. This is one way of making sure that your kid gets out there and does do some exercise. Great idea. You always have good ideas, Catherine. Yeah, well, I have to say, I mean, I've got to be honest, this comes from Bicycling Magazine, Bicycling Magazine, So, and there's a lot more stuff in there about why your kids should bicycle, and or it's a good thing for them to do. It's a good thing for all of us if they do that. So anyway, I thought that was a great article, wanting Excellent to share article. that with you. Uh, just to leave you with this. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always talking about uh, trying new things. You have to leave the ground to learn to fly. Well, I have started to play Scrabble online. Have you? Yeah, I don't know if that's a good thing or not. If you look, <laughs> get out and ride your bike, and you'll see because I have all my games there. I play four or five games a day. Are you addicted? Uh, yeah. And so I'm not so sure. I'm going to have to go to probably a self-help group for it. But that's. <laughs> 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 anyway, Lauren, we got to say goodbye. Catherine Zox, Lauren Beller-Blake, business coach and expert. Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You've been listening to us on VoiceAmericaVariety.com, World Talk Radio. Have a great day, and we'll see you next week. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.